Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Thanks. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with the disciples and teach them. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask, ask him what he meant. After they arrived in Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked the disciples, what were you discussing on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. There is a story where the prophet Samuel goes to the house of Jesse to find a new king, the next king for the kingdom. And so all of Jesse's sons are lined up from tallest and strongest to youngest and weakest. And he kind of goes down the line and he asks God, is this the next king for your kingdom? And he says, no. And he says, is this the king for your kingdom? And he says, no, all the way down the line until he gets to the last son. And he says, God, is this the king for your kingdom? And God says, no. And then almost like he nudges his finger to point way out to the fields. He says, I choose him. David, out in the fields, the forgotten shepherd, the youngest, insignificant, overlooked son. Despite his flaws, I've got a kingdom for him to lead. And he's going to write some killer songs. God chooses those who are overlooked. Much before that, a man named Moses is just doing his shepherd duties in the land of Midian. He began as an abandoned infant and then rose to Egyptian royalty. But now he's just a humble shepherd. He serves in his role as a shepherd and he's known as nobody here in Midian and he's known as a criminal in Egypt, where he used to call home. But God comes to him and says, I've got some slaves that need freeing. And I choose you to be their guide, both a spiritual and physical guide through both lush waters and dry desert. And because of your humble leadership, I have a place of honor for you that will be recognized throughout history. God's honor is different than a royal honor. Back it up even more and we see Joseph dreaming and God promising him honor among his family and among his brothers. And then we see him at the bottom of a well and his brothers looking down at him, striking a deal and selling him into slavery. And in slavery, he thrives as he is a humble servant to his master, but then he's unjustly thrown into jail. Still humbly serving in jail, eventually because of that humility raised to the right hand of Pharaoh so that he can be a servant to those who are hungry. And that is where his brothers and his family 
honor him. See, God promises honor for the humble servant. And we fast forward all the way to see the face of God crying and lying in a manger. God incarnate as a helpless, humble infant who grows up to be a working class member of the nation that he built. He'll face ridicule and praise, long walks in the scorching heat, along with a cool royal donkey ride shaded by palm branches held by those who celebrate his arrival. God's throne is the seat of honor, yet he humbled himself to walk with us and to suffer for us. We've seen this humility since the first pages of Mark. I mean, it begins with God himself just claiming Jesus as his own. But then from there, Jesus is going and giving his time and his attention to those who are rejected and cast out of society, the demon-possessed, the sick, the unclean. Flip the pages as many times as you want, and that's the kind of thing that we see Jesus doing. He's touching people with leprosy, something that nobody ever does. He's stopping for the blind, just lying on the side of the road, and he kneels down and he gives him their atten- or his attention and he helps them to see. For those who are hungry, he magically, not magically, impossibly multiplies food so that they can be satisfied. Jesus teaches with authority and gains popularity and affirms his messiahship to his disciples. And even when his glory is put on display for Peter and James and John to see. He tells them to keep it quiet. And throughout all of his popularity, he goes and he helps people and he lifts them up. And he doesn't become a king despite them trying to crown him. And when he preaches, he walks away and he goes to pray. And once again, he tells his disciples that his mission is the cross. Just like he said before, he's sticking to his word. And last time when he talked about his death, he focused on his suffering. But this time, he says he's going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. And other translations might use similar wording like Jesus will be delivered into the hands of his enemies. And this has the suggestion that, yes, Judas is going to be the one who betrays Jesus and who actually hands him over so that he will be killed. But there's also something else that we can find when we read this as delivered into the hands of his enemies. See, the Greek word for delivered is paradidomi, which actually can mean handed over or betrayed or even gave. So, yeah, there is the idea where Judas is the one who betrays Jesus, and that's a very real reality for him here. But we also read in John 10, 18, when Jesus says, He says this himself, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my father has commanded. So, yes, Judas betrays Jesus. He's the one who hands Jesus' life over, but Jesus is the one who has the authority to lay his life down. Boom, there's the, the scripture. This single verse here shows a beautiful picture, an example of Jesus' mission of humility, because Jesus' mission portrays humility. It shows why he's here. God sent his son not to be served, but to serve. 
Jesus' mission is to serve those who are powerless and those who are honorless and those who are possessionless at every single step as he looks towards the cross so that he can lay down his life for humanity. There's a passage in Philippians 2 that captures the heart of Jesus and his beautiful mission. So the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So while his disciples are arguing over who's the greatest, who's done more for Jesus' ministry, like who's Jesus' favorite, while they're having this argument, they're having this argument about Jesus who really has hardly anything to do with greatness. He is great, but that's not his mission. His mission is humility and servitude. Watch how this passage here in Philippians portrays Jesus' humility. At the beginning... Jesus gives up his divine privileges to be a human and to walk with us. He humbled himself to walk with us. And then more than that, he humbled himself to be brutally and unjustly killed on our behalf. Jesus humbled himself to death on a cross. And even when he's humbled himself from God to human to criminal to death, and then he ra he's raised to the highest honor and every knee is bowing and every tongue is declaring and everyone's praising and bowing before him. In this moment, Jesus is Lord to whose glory? It's to the glory of God the Father. If Jesus is king and if he's the one being honored here, shouldn't he be the one who gets the glory? But it's almost as if while everyone's bowing and looking towards Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't just look at me, also look at my father. And he just kind of turns and starts applauding his father as well. So even in this place of honor, Jesus humbles himself. That is the example of humility that we are to follow. When Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else, that is our example to follow. It's a little bit different than what our world tends to say, than what the voices on the internet might say. It's not humility or servitude. I think a lot of our culture is more concerned with status and power and possession. So like I can go, I can grab my phone and I can go to any celebrity, you know, social media influencer name anyone, right? And there's all sorts of videos that they might be posting, like, like a morning routine kind of thing, right? And people will go to these videos helping to see like, okay, well, there's this successful person and they seem to be doing things right, they're rich, so I'm gonna watch this video and maybe I can be following in their footsteps and then maybe I can be successful and rich. If I were to make a video like that, it would just be really quick. It'd be like, all right, I woke up an hour late, uh, I took a shower and brushed my teeth, made some breakfast and some coffee, 
And I did my daily Bible reading, which right now is through numbers, and I wouldn't suggest that for people who aren't morning people. Um, and then you get done with that, and you'd be like, wow, that was an amazing waste of my 30 seconds just now, right? But when celebrities do it, it looks a little bit different. They wake up to bright sunlight at 5 a.m., and they have their perfectly made bed, except for that one little part that they actually slept in, and that's like a little bit wrinkled. And then they go and they drowsily brush their teeth and look at the news on their phone to stay informed, right? And they make their eggs and slap it on their avocado toast and they eat that, walk over their $1,000 espresso machine and have like the bean product placement as they like kind of make that and they sip that down and they're like, all right, so normally that takes me about 10 minutes to do all that and then I go and have my first 30 minute workout of the day seems unreasonable to me and then all, like while they're saying that they have you know you can see behind them there's magically no dishes to be done and you know the espresso machine just always stays clean they never have to do that right but people come to these videos hoping to gain some sort of like power over their success in their life or or their control of their messiness and they begin to honor the celebrity's way of life in just like these little morning routine videos. It's the simplest thing, but we begin, we begin to honor how they're living. And people try to honor that routine and they hope that if they follow what they're doing, that somehow they're going to gain honor. That somehow if I live this way, maybe my life can be honorable as well. And all along, they're lusting after the things that these people have, like the $1,000 espresso machine and the seamlessly clean house and that at-home gym in the other room. And the status and the power and the possessions seem to control people. But what happens when we as Christians give up those things for the sake of our neighbor and the powerless and the broken? So as I began to kind of consider and study what it means for us to take last place and to be servants, there was a few things that came to mind. Um, and as I was beginning to look up the, what the Bible might say about it, Proverbs actually has some good things to say. And if you guys aren't familiar with the, the purpose of Proverbs, it's one of three books in your Bible that we categorize as wisdom literature. And this is the upbeat one. This is like, do these things and you'll have a good life. And this is how you get through life with trying to avoid hardship the best you can. Um, some helpful advice. It has some good one-liners in there. Um, so we're going to be looking at Proverbs 29 first. It says this, Pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. Pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. Just think back to those examples I gave at the beginning with David and Moses and Joseph and Jesus' whole ministry. Being truly honored begins with a lifestyle that is marked by humble servitude. It begins with serving humbly in the place where God has put you for the time being. And we see these people raised to places of honor later, but our humility portrays Jesus's mission. Let's see, And then we can look at chapter 18, verse 22, and it has kind of two parts here. And we can start by looking at haughtiness goes before destruction. In other words, prideful living precedes destruction. 
So growing up in the States, I feel like that's the opposite of what we're taught in just the voices on the internet and just around us in our culture. And I'm sure it's probably no different here that we are told that we have to look out for ourselves and fight for ourselves and fight tooth and nail, tearing everything down so that we can get to that number one spot and anyone or anything that gets in our way or disagrees with our way of life, just get rid of it. But the Bible says that that's no way to live. You don't find happiness that way. That's not the way that leads to honor. But the second half of this verse provides an alternative to that prideful living. It's humility precedes honor. It's the same principle that Jesus is teaching his disciples here in Mark. If you want to be first, you don't get to the top of the podium. You don't fight to get there. You don't put others down to get there. But you quickly and swiftly, without a second thought, move to the last place spot. And you lift them up instead of tearing them down despite what they think of you or what they say about you or how much they step on you. And then if you want to look at chapter 22 in Proverbs, it says, True humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. True humility and fear of the Lord lead to riches, honor, and long life. The people that fight tooth and nail to get to, to that number one spot, that tear people down, that just want to get up to the very top, to the number one spot, they're so fixated on that that they completely miss that the person in last place that just humbly walks so that they can serve others is experiencing this honor, this, this long life, this happiness in last place that this world just cannot offer them. Through their humble servitude, their father and creator honors them in ways that the world has, doesn't have the capacity to offer. See, looking back at the celebrities that we see online and people like YouTubers, they, they think that they have humility on lock. The problem is that they think that they have to get to that first place spot to do it, right? So I've seen all sorts of people trying to get more likes, more subscribers, more popularity, trying to get more money, more status, raising themselves up. And when they're at the top, they're doing things like giving money to strangers, giving out cars and homes and meals to the needy. And those are pretty good things. I don't think anyone's going to fight about being generous with what you have. But it's also, while they're doing that, boosting that number one spot higher and higher as they get more and more likes and they're boosting their spot further up. So while we seek humility and experience honor as a result from our Father, so many people out there are focused on gaining status and power and possession and then humbly giving out of the overflow. And the question is, how do we as Christ followers take on a lifestyle of humble servitude from last place? When we don't have the money to be giving away cars and homes, when we don't really have overflow to give out of, how can we still give from what we have? That's the question that we're faced with when Jesus says to be the servant of all. And initially, when I think about generosity and servitude, things come to mind like taking out the trash and scrubbing toilets, right? Maybe taking someone out to lunch, 
sharing a cup of coffee with someone, listening to them, or volunteering your time with a Christian organization, with a humanitarian organization. And those are all really good examples of humility. Treating ourselves and our possessions, the, thing that, the things that God have, have, has given us, and using it to bless others. Not when he's given us more blessings than we need, but when he has blessed us, we bless others with what we have. But Jesus takes a little child, for example, to demonstrate to his disciples what it really means to be a servant of all. And in Jesus' context that was built on this honor and shame society where people are ranked by how much honor they have, children are a really good example of someone who doesn't even show up on the list. Like these children find themselves at the bottom of the leaderboard every time because they're dependent on their parents and the people that are taking care of them. They don't have a voice. They don't have any platform to be seen. Their worth is more found in their family than themselves. Now, take some of those principles and just broaden your mind a little bit and think who is it in this village and in our, this country, this world, that is ignored? Who doesn't have a voice or can't stand up for themselves, can't provide for themselves? Who can you think of that is physically or emotionally or spiritually hurt? Someone who maybe just needs to be heard. Who are those people? And Jesus says it's those people that we are to welcome. To welcome into our lives, into our homes, sometimes into our wallets or our pantries. But at the very least, into our hearts. In short, we can kind of sum all this up with hospitality. And it's this hospitality that portrays humility. I wonder if I'm behind here. Nope, I'm not. All right. It's that hospitality that portrays humility. I don't think it's a coincidence that us interns have been reading this uh, book that talks a good amount about, about hospitality while I was preparing the sermon. Uh, so there's an American pastor named Rich Fiotis who has a couple of lines in his book, The Deeply Formed Life. Um, and it talks about hospitality, helps us to get this greater idea of what it really is. So it says, hospitality is not simply the opening of our homes, it is the opening of our hearts to another. And hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them a space where change can happen. So reading that is when I realized that a lot of Christ followers, if you read through the Bible, his followers and his disciples and their families, they are demonstrating hospitality by opening their home to Jesus and the whole gang. And they're giving them a place to stay and food to eat. But Jesus, his hospitality came for everybody that he interacted with and that he healed. Because he, uh, he interacted with them with an open heart and open arms. And there's a few examples that we can kind of take to follow in the footsteps of Jesus' hospitality. Um, and they are lowering ourselves, opening our homes, and opening our hearts. These three things, though they're separate, they kind of go hand in hand. Like if a child is crying or just tr trying to say something to you, chances are you're going to kneel down and get on their level. And you're going to talk to them. And you're saying, hey, I'm not going to just lord over you and like kind of listen to what you're saying, but I want to get close to you. I want to listen to you. And I want to connect with you. I want to know what you're feeling and hear what you're saying. 
And whether we're lowering ourselves physically or spiritually or emotionally to get on someone's level, we are empathizing with them in a way that allows us to be in a position of servitude to them. When we open our homes, we're, we're offering a place to feel welcome and accepted and safe. Like if there's a storm outside, you want to be inside, right? So when someone is facing a spiritual storm, we welcome them by bringing them in. We give them a place to feel safe. And when they get to see the dirty dishes sitting in your sink, and when they get to see that weak old bag of McDonald's in the back seat, or your shoes are strewn all about, it's the way of saying that you're inviting them into your genuine self, into a genuine conversation, and that they don't need to pretend either, which leads into opening our hearts, right? Because we need to take off our masks if we're expecting someone else to do the same. If you want to connect with someone, if you want to help someone, we take off our masks and we stop pretending and we connect with them on a deep emotional and spiritual level and we have a conversation and you ask them what's going on in their lives. We don't just check some boxes, but we connect with them. We lean down and we let them know that we're here for them. And in this way, we are able to humbly serve them and we give them a space to be authentic and we give a space that has the opportunity for change. Jesus was a humble servant. His death is the great act of humility that we meet every single week to remember and to talk about. And as Luke and the rest of us were discussing this passage on Wednesday, he said, we're called to race to the back of the line. We need to be servants. We need to welcome the lowly and the small and those in need. In a world that worships status and power and possessions, we worship our God with a mindset of humble servitude. The Christian mindset is humble servitude. It always has been. And as we walk with that mindset, day in and day out, and slowly but surely letting the Holy Spirit break down and deconstruct our pride and our thirst for worldly greatness... Our perfect Father honors us, and He crowns us, and He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. And with open arms and an open heart, He welcomes us into His home. That is actually what we meet every week to talk about. We talk about this humility that Jesus has as He's welcoming us into His story, into His kingdom. And that is why every single week we do things like communion. It's a way of humbling ourselves and we're saying, all right, I, I'm not my own. I am God's. I, I follow Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. So I give up my own earthly identity. I don't search for my own greatness. But in fact, I need to become less and less so that God can become more and more, greater and greater within me. That's what we do when we, are, when we take communion together. We're, we're remembering Jesus' sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins. We're partaking in that and we're entering into the story. This heavenly kingdom that is present on earth through people like us, people who follow Jesus. 
And one way that we can take just the simplest step in like humbling ourselves and lowering ourselves down is recognizing that we are broken. That while we go and we help broken people and we connect with people who are in need, we're also just as broken as they are. And we make mistakes and we are sinful. So every week we say this prayer, offering to God all of our mistakes and asking for his forgiveness. So let's go ahead and read this together. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. In your mercy, forgive what we have been. Help us to amend what we are and direct what we shall be, that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God.